exhibition, co-sponsored by KPFA, is wheelchair accessible. Find more information on the website, mylimemorial.org. And you are listening to 94.1 KPFA and 89.3 KPFB in Berkeley, 88.1 KFCF in Fresno, 97.5 K248BR in Santa Cruz and online at kpfa.org. The time is 3 p.m. Stay tuned next for Stone's Throw with Jennifer Stone. Happy ending, nice and tidy, it's a rule I learned in school. Get your money every Friday, happy endings are the rule, so divide up in darkness from the ones who walk in light light them up boys there's your picture drop the shadows out of This is Jennifer Stone with Stone's Throw. Today is uh, March 20th, 2018. That's what it is. Uh, This week, uh, my oldest son will be 58, same age as uh, Mike Pence as the vice president. Right. My oldest child, pushing 60. Uh, I'm sorry, but I just feel absolutely frivolous today. Very silly. Uh, Children, children, children get to be, get to be not just middle-aged, but, you know, late middle-aged. And uh, yesterday I I found out, well, my son wrote me a little note. I guess he didn't want to call. He's moving to Texas. Oh, my God. Oh, my God. What do we do? What do we do with our children? What do we do with our children? I I can't help it. I I'm afraid I'm feeling uh what is that? Uh not just frivolous, but giddy. I looked here in my favorite my favorite little book, uh Archie and Mehitable by Don Marcus. Do you remember the one about the cockroach? <laughs> he lived he lived this life uh the cockroach, you know, uh he uh, typed his uh, poems. There are no capital letters here, yes. Uh, this is a, uh, a column in the newspaper long ago. My mother loved it back in the 30s, I think. It was all about Archie, this cockroach, and his pal Mehitable. Now, Mehitable was a, a screwball cat, and she... She yes, she used to say, yes, Archie is a dance in the old aim yet. Uh-huh. Uh, always gay, toujours gay, kiddo. My mother's best friend always uh, quoted Mehitabel whenever she came in or left. You know, she turned the music on and say, always the lady, Archie, always the lady. Now, I'm looking here for Mehitabel's, uh, Mehitabel's attitude towards children. Uh, Mehitabel and her kittens, yes. 
Now, first we have Mahitabel speaking, and then at the end, we have Archie commenting on her, 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 her maternal instincts, right? Uh, Mahitabel and her kittens. Well, boss, Mahitabel the cat has reappeared in her old haunts with a flock of kittens, three of them this time. Footnote, boss is the, uh, the writer whose typewriter Archie uses at night. You know, he sneaks in and types his poems, and he always says, would you leave some apple parings in the wastebasket, boss? Uh, the other stuff, you know, he said was making him sick. Anyway, Mahitabha the cat, says Archie, has reappeared in her old haunts with a flock of kittens, three of them this time. Archie, she said to me yesterday... The life of a female artist is continually hampered. What in hell have I done to deserve all these kittens? I look back on my life, and it seems to me to be just one damned kitten after another. I am a dancer, Archie. My only prayer is to be allowed to give my best to my art. But just as I feel that I'm succeeding in my life work, along comes another batch of these damned kittens. It is not, Archie, that I am shy on mother love. God knows I care for the sweet little things, curse them. But am I never to be allowed to live my own life? I have purposely avoided matrimony in the interests of the higher life. Ah, but I might just as well have been a domestic slave for all the freedom I have gained. Ah, I hope none of them gets run over by an automobile. My heart would bleed if anything happened to them, and I found it out. But it isn't fair, Archie. It isn't fair. These damn tomcats have all the fun and freedom. If I was like some of these green-eyed feline vamps I know, I would simply walk out on the bunch of them and let them shift for themselves. But I am not that kind, Archie. I am full of mother love. My kindness has always been my curse. A tender heart is the cross I bear. Self-sacrifice always and forever is my motto, damn them. Oh, I will make a home for this sweet, sweet, innocent, innocent creatures. Yes. Uh, <laughs> yes. Uh, he goes on to say, yes, make a home for the sweet little things. Ah, unless, unless, of course, Providence in his wisdom should remove them. They are living just now in an abandoned garbage can, just behind Madeover Stable in Greenwich Village. And if it rained into the can before I could get back and rescue them... I am afraid the little dears might drown. Oh, it makes me shudder just to think of it. Of course, if I were a family cat, they would probably be drowned anyhow. Sometimes I think 
the kinder thing would be for me to carry the sweet little things over to the river and drop them in myself. But, ah, ah, mother's love, Archie, is so unreasonable. Something always prevents me. These terrible conflicts are always presenting themselves to the artist. The eternal struggle between art and life, Archie, is something fierce. Yes, something fierce. My, what a dramatic life I have lived. One moment up, the next moment down again. But always gay, Archie, always gay. And always the lady, too. (laughs) Archie goes on. He says, he writes, Well, boss, it will be interesting to note just how Mehitabel works out her present problem. A dark mystery still broods over the manner in which the former family of three kittens disappeared. One day she was talking to me of the kittens, and the next day, when I asked her about them, she said innocently, Oh, what kittens, Archie? interrogation point (laughs) and that was all I could ever get out of her on the subject we had a heavy rain right after she spoke to me but probably that garbage can leaks and so the kittens have not yet been drowned (laughs) signed Archie I just love Archie and me it always uh cheers me up because it always has something to say about life's uh, life's vicissitudes you know all of our problems particularly I like yes there's a rat in here that was well I I can't read about the rat today but you know they had a funeral for the rat out on the balcony Uh, oh yes I'll save those for next time but I just think that lately uh, in these sad times all I can do is search for something that will cheer me up and lift my spirits. Yes. <laughs> like, like my dear son moving off to Texas. Yes, uh, age 58, my goodness. What a life I have had and what, what times I have had trying to do the right thing and be a proper mom. Never mind. What have I got here in my purse? I brought Dorothy Parker. I thought that Dorothy Parker would be a thing to cheer me up because Dorothy Parker is, I think, uh, America's literary um, lady in terms of, well, you you know, nowadays the the funny women are mostly stand-up comedians. The good ones, Lily... Tomlin, that's okay. So many of them are just um, self-denigrating, and they they kind of kind of give me a headache. Uh, I like Sarah Silverman, uh, but I always go back to Dorothy Parker on account of because she was a literary lady. She always said that you know she was a kind of uh, uh, a version of Ed to St. Vincent Millay, but she was in her own little sneaker, she used to say. Yes. <laughs> like me, Annabelle. She 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 and and um, she and, and Edna St. Vincent Millay, one of them would say, Life is just 
one damn thing after another. And the other would reply, no, no, life is just the same damn thing over and over. Now you figure out the difference. Anyway, last night I I pulled down a biography of Dorothy Parker. I made a little note here. Did you know that Dorothy Parker was born, she's older than my mother, uh, born Dorothy Rothschild. Not one of the Rothschilds. She married a guy called Charlie Parker, and she, she called that, God forgive her, she called that a nice, clean name, Parker, you know. Anyway, there's a biography from 1987 by Marion Mead, which I can recommend those of you who care to read about <laughs> the, the biographies of all these wonderful women who uh, didn't get their due, or maybe they did. Anyway, her biography, 1987, Marion Mead, is titled, What Fresh Hell Is This? <laughs> I think, I think years ago, I put together uh, a number of programs on women and humor for KPFA here. And I realized at that time that, uh, well, as Dorothy Parker put it, uh, humor can be uh, a shield, but it is not really a weapon. Uh, I think that humor is rebellion. That's the best, the best thing. Yes, the waters of wit flow, wash up out from the well of sorrow. There you go. Uh, and St. Vincent Millay said, Weepers are the sea's brides. I mean this the drowning way. I think about that often, the fact that the women poets, at least in my time, maybe even the Victorians, uh, did a lot of weeping, trying to find a happy woman writer. It's quite a chore. Gertrude Stein, maybe. She had a great life, but <coughs> all the rest, the writing seemed to come out of pain and suffering. Anyway, Dorothy Parker took another bite out of the apple, and she just kind of looked life and love in the eye. Sweeter the apple, the blacker the core. Here's a quote from the portable Dorothy Parker. She writes, Though to good I never come, inseparable my nose and thumb. <laughs> I'm sure that Dorothy Parker would be horrified if I called her a foremother. Uh, as, you know, well, as... She said in those days, yes. Uh, <laughs> uh, well, I can't quote this. I can't quote this. Because most of her conversation was like this, too. It's absolutely un, 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 unsayable here. Like W.C. Fields, much of her wit was wasted because it was too obscene for publication. I think Dorothy Parker is mother wit. I know that my... Mother and her friends 
could recite the poems by heart. For them, Dorothy Parker was the feminine mystique of the jazz age. Self-destructive, self-doubting, self-centered. She was a woman who did not cook, nor clean, nor cater to the needs of others. She lived in a hotel, she said, because all she needed was room to lay a hat and a few friends. Born August 1893, Dorothy, right, okay. Nine years older than both my parents, right. Uh There's a movie out you might like to see called Mrs. Parker and the Round Table. It was directed by Alan Rudolph. Uh, He's a protege of Robert Altman. Uh, I thought that movie wasn't so bad. Jennifer Jason Leigh played Dorothy. And uh, I I was made very uncomfortable by her interpretation. But then I thought about it and I thought about it. And uh, she seemed to be so affected. Uh, But maybe that that that's close to the to the mark. Uh, uh, the movie itself gives us a kind of overdressed picture of the 1920s and of all those New Yorkers who met for lunch at the Algonquin Round Table. The gangs all there in the movie, from Alexander Wolcott to Robert Benchley. Uh, the actors chosen to play them all are hereditary royalty in Hollywood. Four of them are Yale graduates. Uh, Look for the daughter of Arthur Miller, daughter of Keith Carradine, the daughter of Blythe Danner, son of John Cassavetes, son of Jason Robards, son of William Sean. Ah, amazing. Ah, our aristocrats, our royalty, Hollywood. That's a trip, that's a trip. Well, you know, we have to have kings and queens, even if they're just actors. Uh, I guess, in a way, it's elitist. It's a class issue or just nepotism. I'll think about that tomorrow, after all, you know. Uh, I wish I could make a movie about Dorothy Parker. I think my title would be Girls Who Wear Glasses. You'd remember her quip. Men never make passes at girls who wear glasses. Actually, the best memorial to Dorothy Parker would be a careful filming of her play, Ladies of the Corridor. That play was first produced on Broadway in 1953. Let's see, I'd have been 20. And I missed that. I I didn't get to New York till 1955. The play closed after six weeks. In Marion Mead's biography, she writes, Even though the New York Times critics thought everyone knew that old women lead pathetic lives without having to go to the theater for a reminder, still, five of the eight New York reviewers admired this play. I, uh, well, I think, let's see, what does it say here? It got a Best American Play of the Season in the Drama Critics Circle Balloting. George G. Nathan thought it was, quote, completely honest. That's what it was about Dorothy. She was honest. She told the truth. And, you know, 
You know where that got her. Uh, the biographer states that Parker came to think of uh, Ladies of the Corridor as a feminist play, one that warned women to, quote, stop sitting around and saying it's a man's world. Uh, Marion Mead writes, although the wasted lives of her characters disturbed her, she was inclined to believe that their illness was rooted not so much in age as in manlessness. Oh, God. Aha. Uh-huh. She thought they should be better trained, adjusted to live a life without a man. That was a problem that she herself had yet to resolve. Mm, I think of Edna Malay, yes. Pity me not that a man's desire is hushed so soon. God forbid a woman should give herself away, should admit the depth of her desires. Our needs, yes, can be used to exploit her. Anyway, the biographer goes on to describe Dorothy Parker's fears of becoming a crone, that is, a wise old woman. Her characters all have aspects of Dorothy's own problems, alcoholism, suicidal behavior, seeking solace from younger men, so on and so on. Uh, I think... I think uh, when Parker wrote the play, she must have been, let's see, age 59. Uh, I read the uh, play at some point. I did scenes from it for workshops over the years. The play helped me understand my mother's mythos, the middle-aged despair that caused her to give up food for booze and cigarettes. This mythos helped end my mother's life when she was only uh, 44, 44 years. Parker was a strong woman. She lived to be 73. In spite of her suicide attempts, abortions, and substance abuse. Uh, There's an obit in The New Yorker written on Dorothy Parker's 100th birthday. That was back in 1993. The article has a merciless photo taken by Richard Avedon in 1958 when Dorothy was 65. (laughs) That photo can only be described as roadkill. I felt like my grandmother's grave had been desecrated. Then I laughed a little thinking that Jennifer Jason Lee is going to have to portray Parker at age 65. Now, makeup may get pouches under the eyes, but the pagan in that soul, the mordant wit that she turned on herself more than anyone else, the profound pessimism, you know, that looked into the abyss and laughed. Parker wrote her own epitaph, quote, excuse my dust. (laughs) Dorothy Parker wrote the zeitgeist of the jazz age. She expressed the spirit of her age during the years when women burst from the corsets of conformity (laughs) only to find themselves in what Parker called a fresh hell, yes. 
yes, the cage from the corsets of conformity to the comforts of the cage. Ah, I just made that up. Great phrase. Mm -hmm. She had a false freedom, flappers and fraudulent fun. Dorothy liked to call herself a slut and cheat. She wanted to describe the sexual mores of her time as a blind alley of impotence, inadequacy, and Victorian hang-ups. She knew that sex was something you were supposed to be good at. She was not quite five feet tall. She was a woman who slept with anyone she liked, and worse yet, shot off her mouth about it. As she puts it, yes, poets alone should kiss and tell. Her dearest friend, Robert Benchley, was someone she loved, loved too much to sleep with. Got that? Uh, makes sense. Mm -hmm. Too much to sleep with. The Benchley was known to be quite a ladies' man, anyway. Both Parker and Benchley remind me of their significant elder, the great Oscar Wilde. All three terminal romantics, sexual suicides, looking for escape through ecstasy. Parker wrote, If with the literate I am impelled to try an epigram, I never seek to take the credit. We all assume that Oscar said it. When Oscar Wilde flew in the face of Victorian morality, they put him in jail, destroyed him, destroyed his life. Took only two years, so... When Dorothy Parker and Robert Benchley did it, they only made a heterosexual hell for themselves. Oh, dear. In Dorothy's case, early loss was an obligatory biographical detail. You know, all romantics have uh, early loss in their biographies. Dorothy Parker's mother died when she was five. She screamed her head off, but her mother did not return. When her father remarried, she hated her stepmother, and then this poor woman died when Dorothy was ten. So guilt was added to the mix. Dorothy's writing is awash with graves and with the rain that fell when her mother was buried. She imagines her own death, quote, Oh, let it be a night of lyric rain and singing breezes when my bell is tolled. I have so loved the rain that I would hold last in my ears its friendly, dim refrain. When Dorothy did die in 1967, the funeral was held in bright sunlight. She had requested no service. But Lillian Hellman took over. Parker adored Lillian Hellman, the playwright, you know. Uh, now, <laughs> Lillian Hellman was always worried that Dorothy would talk about her behind her back. Lillian was the sort of person who cared about that sort of thing. Parker was famous first, so Lillian Hellman was glad of her company, but later she tried to avoid her because Dorothy was alcoholic, and Lillian uh, had had enough of that uh, with Dashiell Hammett, you know. Lillian Hellman might have done a better job as literary executor. Dorothy had promised to leave the rights to her work first to Dorothy, to uh, Lillian Hellman, and then to Martin Luther King Jr. 
and the NAACP. Instead, her estate of, uh, let's see, $20,448.39 after the debts were paid, it went directly to Martin Luther King. (laughs) Elman didn't even bother to pick up Dorothy's ashes, and they sat in a file cabinet until 1988 when the NAACP claimed them and placed them in a memorial garden on the grounds of its Baltimore headquarters. How about that? Uh, (laughs) Lillian Hellman and Dorothy Parker were leftists of the literary sort, you know. Uh, I used to call them uh, champagne communists, you know. Champagne, socialists, parlor pinks. Those are the ones who care, but they do not live on the barricades. Uh, Anyway, Dorothy said, no, wait a minute, this is Hellman. Hellman said, it's one thing to have real feeling for black people, but to have the kind of blind sentimentality about the NAACP, a group so conservative that even many blacks now don't have any respect for, is something else. She must have been drunk when she did it. (laughs) As Parker writes, uh, yes, who needs friends? Every enemy is friends, faithful. Every foe, yes, is faithful till I die. I'll be back on the air next week. This has been Jennifer Stone. Till then, go easy. And if you can't go easy, go as easy as you can. Do you have a story to share or an idea you've been sitting on? Are you in search of a creative outlet or do you just plain have something to say? Let your voice be heard in KPFA's First Voice Apprenticeship Program. We value your experience and believe you have a right to share your truth. For decades, the apprenticeship program has been training